be finding in your Bible this morning, Isaiah chapter 6. Since we have been talking about worship, uh, this in Isaiah chapter 6 is one passage of Scripture that has to be looked at. I thought about not looking at it, about going to another passage, but God laid it on my heart to focus on this passage this morning. Now, if you are one who make notes in your Bible, you're going to see I've preached from this passage before. About, uh, according to my records, about three, a little over three and a half years ago. Do you remember the sermon I preached then? Uh, just, just checking. I want to make sure I didn't, you know, hit the same points, which actually I'm not. Folks, I, what I want us to look at today is the fact of something that took place thousands of years ago that happened at church. And see that what happened at church then... In a sense, it ought to happen at church today. I want you to look with me. Let's start reading in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. prophet says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain, or two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips. Thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. See ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. But ye in it all, but yet, rather in it all, shall be a tenth. And it shall return, and shall be eaten as a a tail tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. Father, today as we look at this powerful passage of Scripture, I pray that you'll give me the ability needed to explain it clearly, that you would speak through me, that, uh, Father your words would come alive and would burn into our heart. I pray you bless this time and I pray that we will take what we hear and learn and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Now folks, as we continue thinking about worship, what we're doing this morning, we have the privilege of coming into a worship service that's already in progress. In Isaiah 6, he details the day that he went to church. 
And what he does in this chapter, he tells of that day, and he records what he experienced at church. And he has a vision, and he hears a voice like never before. So simply put, folks, when Isaiah went to church that day, he saw the king. Now when I say the king, I'm talking about King Jesus. You say, how's that possible? This was the Old Testament. Matter of fact, this was written 753 years before Jesus was born. What we have here, folks, and I've said it before, is an Old Testament appearance of the New Testament Jesus. People that see God, I believe that's the picture that they see and that they reference. So we have a picture of the King, Jesus, high and lifted up. Now I realize it may be hard for you to grasp and believe, but it did happen. What we're studying today actually happened at church. Did you hear me? At church. Now, I know we don't come to church expecting things like this. We don't come to church expecting for God to show up. In his book, uh, Steve Gaines, who is our current president of the Southern Baptist Convention, in his book, When God Comes to Church, Steve writes this. <clears throat> he says, think about what Sunday mornings must be like for God. Imagine Him sitting on His holy throne, looking at His people in their worship services. Is he captivated by what he sees? Does he lean forward in eagerness to hear more? Is he pleased with our singing and preaching? Does he say to himself, those folks there know what worship is all about? Now folks, I'm going to tell you something. I, I have no doubt that once service was over with here in Isaiah 6, that God readily said about Isaiah, this man knows what worship is all about. Now I want to call your attention to three specific things that we see in this text that happened at church. And the first thing, the most important thing is that God showed up. You know, we all have uh, dates and remember dates from history that are of significance, that are of importance. For instance, if I say December 7th, 1941, what comes to your mind? Pearl Harbor. That will forevermore be remembered as the day of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. How about uh, November 22nd, 1963? day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. How about a little newer? How about uh, September the 11th, 2001? The day when the Twin Towers came down. Well, the prophet Isaiah had a memorable date as well. But he doesn't attach a number to it. Instead, he, he does it in such a way that it resounds, folks, louder than any ordinary number day could. He simply refers to it. Look at verse 1. He refers to it as the year that King Uzziah died. You say, well, what's important about that? Well, it's important because that was a traumatic experience for the Jew living in that day and time. You see, folks, under the reign of Uzziah, Judah, for more than 50 years, they had enjoyed a time of peace, a time of prosperity, and plenty. So for the most part, life under King Uzziah's rule was good. Now, however, King Uzziah's gone. And the thought of someone else occupying the throne, I'm sure, was unsettling. But it's right here at this very point that God, He shifts Isaiah's attention. Isaiah's focus and attention is lifted from an earthly king on an earthly throne to a heavenly king on an everlasting throne. Isaiah went to church, God showed up, the king of kings walked in, and Isaiah came to realize while the throne of Judah may have been vacant, the throne in heaven was occupied. So where are you going with this preacher? Well, one king died 
as all earthly kings will, and one king lives and lives forever as no one else ever can. That's what I'm getting you to understand and realize. When God showed up, Isaiah saw two things. First of all, he saw the greatness of his power. Again, look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord, now here's talking about his power, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And it says his train filled the temple. Then verse 4 speaks of one so powerful, the post of the door moved, or the whole building, the whole foundation, the ground shook at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah receives a, a glorious revelation. A revelation of the fact that the same God who created the world is the God who controls the world. You see, he got that, the vision that this God who created and controls the world can do with this world what he wants to, when he wants to, how he wants to. Friend, that was a, a, no doubt a great comfort to Isaiah's heart. But Christian, that ought to be a great comfort to your heart and mine as well. To know that in spite of anything and everything that happens, God is powerful enough to be in control of it all. In the midst of terrorist attacks and wars, in the midst of financial crisis and cultural dissipation and political upheaval and spiritual hostility and hatred to Christians, God is still on the throne. He's still in charge. He still controls all of it. I want you to understand when a, and I know it's hard for people to grasp this, but when a deranged individual walks into a schoolhouse and kills near slaughters, near 20 innocent people, God's still on His throne. God's still in control. Folks, when, when planes fly into buildings, God's still on His throne and still in control. When the doctor tells you or a loved one you got cancer, understand, God is still in control. He's still God. When the boss calls you in and says, hey, you know what, we're going to have to make some cutbacks. I'm sorry, i got to let you go. Friend, God is still God. When your loved one departs, God is still God. And let me say this, when all of the world seems to be falling apart, it does not change the fact that God is still God. He's in charge and He sits on His throne controlling it all. Thank God we can sing the hymns of the old song on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Isaiah saw the one who created it all, who controls it all, who completes it all, and does not need help from anyone. God's unrivaled power is a result of the holiness of His person. Now folks, and I hope you see this, the most wonderful and awesome thing I believe Isaiah beheld was not the power of God, but the person of God Himself. He sees the vision of God and He's unchallenged. He's unequaled. He's unblemished. Look at verses 2 and 3. Above it stood the seraphims. He's talking about... The throne, he said, above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Notice what they're saying. The angels are saying one to another. It's like that chorus that we sing from time to time. They're saying, Holy, holy, holy. Holy is God the Father. Holy is God the Son. Holy is God the Spirit. Holy is the great three in one. 
Now understand, and I think I've told you this before, one of the main tools for creating emphasis in Hebrew writing is what's known as the element of repetition. So, in the same way that we might underline or italicize or put it in bold or put an exclamation uh, point at the end of it, a Jewish writer often repeats a word to make his point. And to repeat a word three times, the writer was elevating that word to its highest crescendo, to its highest level of importance. For example, although God is love, the Bible never speaks of God as love, love, love. Although God is merciful, the Bible never speaks of God as mercy, mercy, mercy. Although God is gracious, the Bible never speaks of God as grace, grace, grace. However, the Bible makes it clear that God is holy, holy, holy. And this is a point of emphasis to God's very nature and His character. Understand, friend, holiness is not something that God does. Holiness is who God is. Holy. Now think about this. Think about the God, the holy God that we serve, friend. He can create a world by stepping out of nowhere, standing on nothing, and speaking nothing into existence. He can part a sea with just... The Bible says, by blowing his nose. He can lead millions of people through the wilderness and feed them on manna and water for 40 years and none of them starved to death. God, he can, he can touch the womb of a virgin and cause her to give birth to a son and call his name Jesus for his son will be the Savior of the world. He can walk on water. He can restore sight to the blind. He can cause the lame to walk again. He can turn water into wine. But I'll tell you, one of the greatest miracles I believe that God performs is when He takes a hell-bound, hell-deserving sinner, an outcast of society, and makes him a brand new creation in Jesus Christ. He can do all those things. But friend, He has not sinned. He will not sin. You know why? Because God cannot sin. Why? Because He's holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah walked into church that day, that's who showed up. The holy God. Now I say to you today, and you've heard me say it before, every time we come through the doors of this church house, we ought to come looking for God to show up. In fact, if He doesn't show up, not only should we be disappointed, but the bottom line is, if we come together to worship and God doesn't show up, then we're wasting our time. Understand, friend, it's not the singing or the programs or the personalities or the fellowship or the preacher or the politics and the business of the church that makes the difference. It's the presence of Almighty God that makes the difference in church. Somebody might say, well, how do we know if God shows up? I assure you, if God shows up, you're going to know it. And if He don't show up and you're a believer, you ought to know that too. Secondly, because God showed up, I want you to see Isaiah's guilty heart was convicted and he spoke up. At the church service, Isaiah, now he not only saw God, but he saw himself. The first look that Isaiah got was to see who God was. And then because of seeing who God was, Isaiah saw who he was. And Isaiah didn't like what he saw. As a result of what he saw, the guilt of his soul broke him. Now, 
What was it? Let's talk about this a minute. What did Isaiah see that caused his guilty heart to cry out and to speak up? Well, for one thing, friend, he saw how depraved he really was. Get the picture here. Isaiah, perhaps for the first time in a long time, Isaiah sees the Lord. And once he saw the glory of the Lord, he saw the guilt of his own life. I'm going to tell you, don't care who you are, if you truly see God and all of His holiness, you will see a true picture of yourself and all of your sinfulness. Look at verse 5. Look at his immediate response. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Listen, when Isaiah saw the Lord in His holiness, he saw himself in His sinfulness. When he saw the Lord in His holiness, he saw himself in all of His hellishness. When he saw the Lord for who He really was, he saw himself for who He really was. A sinner in need of God's grace. Isaiah comes clean before God. What he covered, God uncovered. Now, realize, folks, it took deity to reveal depravity. It took God to reveal the guilt in Isaiah's heart. It took a clear picture of God to gain a clear picture of himself. And it was not a pretty picture. The truth of the matter is that without a clear picture of God, folks, any picture we have of ourselves is a picture of deception. You hear what I'm saying? If we do not truly see who God is, then we will never truly see who we are. Billy Sunday was right. He said most people don't want to see God any more than a criminal wants to see a cop. I think that's true. We don't want to see God because when we do, we'll see ourselves and we're not going to like what we see. But I'm going to tell you this, folks. You cannot see God and walk away the same old person. You cannot truly see God and walk away the same old person that you was. Mark Twain was right. He said man's like the moon. We all have a dark side we don't want anybody to see. And think about our day and age. Sociologists, they call it a cultural lag. The psychiatrists, they, they use terms like emotional behavior. The philosopher, they call it irrational thinking. Uh, the humanist, they excuse it as human weakness. The Marxist, they're going to define it as class struggle. Uh, the psychologists, they want to explain things in terms of psychogenes and, and, I don't know, heartburn or whatever it may be. The Freudian, they're going to speak about the slip, you know. The politician refers to it as inappropriate conduct. The criminologist, they might write it off as antisocial behavior. The liberal theologian says it's a lack of social action and social understanding. But friend, let me make it crystal clear for you. God simply says it is sin and we're all guilty of it. Man has sought to blame everyone and everything since the Garden of Eden for his sin. Is that not true? But there is no one else to blame but himself. Listen to me, the reason we are the way we are, the reason we're the way we are is not because mom wouldn't let us eat Frosted Flakes and made us eat Wheaties when we were a kid. Okay? It's not because we grew up in the wrong town or on the wrong side of the tracks. The reason we are the way we are, and I know I'm going to be very politically incorrect, but it has nothing to do with our skin color. 
The reason we are the way we are, and I'm talking about every person on this planet, and this is going to be hard for some people to hear. The reason we're the way we are is because every one of us is a filthy, wretch, low-down, good-for-nothing, hell-deserving sinner. We are dead in our sins. We're defiled from sin, folks. We're depraved because of sin. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And like Isaiah, we need to never forget how depraved we are. You say, why would I want to remember that? Well, this is important. Because when Isaiah realized how depraved he was, he realized how desperate he was for God. The problem he faced was great, but, but folks, the solution was glorious. In the midst of all this depravity, he found God's remedy. Look at verse 6. He was desperate for it. Verse 6, it says, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. The truth of his depravity, folks, it rang like a, a toll, like a bell in his heart, okay? So he responds in desperation. And I, I believe that it talks about him going, I, it, the way it speaks here, I get the picture of him going to an altar and kneeling. And as he kneels at the altar in repentance, a coal was brought from the altar and placed on his lips. Now let me break this down and explain it to you. The coal speaks of judgment. The altar represents a place of sacrifice. So from the altar, the place of sacrifice, came the fire to cleanse and forgive his sins. Let me bring it into us, all right? Let me tighten the focus on it. At the cross, friend, Jesus Christ was the coal that lay upon the altar. Jesus endured the fire of God's judgment so that when we come to the altar in our heart and accept Him as our Savior, we walk away cleansed and our sins are forgiven. Are you following me? Let me give this illustration. Some of you guys are firefighters, retired firefighters. Most of my career, I worked in, in areas in the city where most of the fires we fought were house fires or building fires, commercial fires. I didn't get to do a whole lot of fighting wildfires and grass fires and, and uh, forest fires. They didn't have a lot of forest fires in the city. But uh, uh, several years in my career, I got stationed at an outpost. I mean the furthest part of the realm outpost, which everybody did. One of the things those guys did out there was fight grass fires a lot. So for several years, as a young firefighter, that's what I got to do. And I learned a lot of lessons. You know, and you guys are the firefighters. You can vouch for this. Fighting grass fires a lot of times is fun. That's a fun part of the job until it's not fun anymore. Because not only is it one of the funnest, I guess, fires you can fight, it's also one of the most dangerous. Because there's so many conditions and that fire is not confined by anything. At least in the building, that fire is confined. Out in the open, it's not. Well, one thing you learn real quick when you're fighting a grass fire is stay on the burnt side. Don't get off the unburnt side. For your safety, stay on the burnt side. You know why they say that? And it's true. Because a fire cannot come where a fire's already been. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Well, listen to me. All of humanity needs to understand and be for sure and certain the fire of God's judgment is going to fall. 
I'm telling you, it fell more than 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary. And when the judgment of God comes, and come it will, I believe it's going to come sooner or later, it's going to happen. And I believe God's judgment is coming sooner than later. And when God's judgment comes to sweep people into hell, there's only one safe spot, friend, that you can stand. And that's the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where the fire of God's judgment has already fallen. You understand me? <clears throat> you know, it's interesting. You can take note, all four of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, and Ezekiel, they all received a touch from God. Now think about this. The touch came to Ezekiel, it was a touch of prophecy. touch that came to Daniel, it was a touch of perception. The touch that came to uh, Jeremiah was a touch of power. And then Isaiah, the coal from the altar came and touched Isaiah's lips, that was a touch of purity. Now friend, listen to me, church. That's the very same touch we stand in need of today. We all need that touch. The touch of the coal from the altar. The touch from the Master. And I want to tell you something. That touch will redeem. It will reconcile. It will renew. It will repair, folks. It matters not who you are or what you've done. It matters not if you're a sinner or a saint because there's only one hope for you and I. And that's only found in the touch of forgiveness and restoration from the hand of the Master. Finally, at this church service, once God showed up and Isaiah, in repentance, broken heart, he spoke up, then Isaiah signed up. Isaiah seen the Lord, and because he saw the Lord, he saw himself. So he seen how depraved he was, as well as how desperate he was. And again, I want to remind you, all this actually happened in the church service. Happened at church. You get the idea that Isaiah, he's filled with such gratitude because of what God has done, that he desires to do whatever God calls him to do. <clears throat> he signs up. Notice the answer is given by a willing heart. Because the question's asked. Look at verse 8. And everybody knows this verse. God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now understand, up until this point, Isaiah would not have given the right answer. But remember, Isaiah has seen the king. He has seen God in all of his holiness. So now he answers the right way. He says, Here am I. Send me. Now, I love the fact that he doesn't say, Here am I. Send him. He doesn't say, here am I, but send the preacher. That's what we pay him for. Here am I, but send the missionary. Here am I, but send somebody who's had seminary training. No, friend, to answer that question, he answers it the only way a man who has seen the king could answer that question. He says, here am I, send me. Now, I love the wording, the way the King James does it. I know the modern translations, many of them don't do it this way. But I love the wording, how it's worded in the King James, the exact wording. He doesn't say, here I am. That would refer to his location. But instead, he says, here am I. That speaks of his vocation. What I'm saying is that speaks of his willingness to work, to do whatever God calls him to do. Here am I. He was saying, Lord, here am I. You can take me anywhere you want. You can, you can lead me to do anything you want me to do. It does not matter to me. It's all up to you. Folks, I remember when I used to say when I was younger, first went to ministry, and I used to say, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere that you want me to go. 
Here am I, send me. But they were just words because in the back of my mind, I was like, here am I, send me, but don't send me to Africa, India, China, and several other places on the planet I could think of. It was all just empty words, folks. But then I want to tell you something. There came a day when I caught a fresh glimpse of who God was. And when I saw God, when He gave me a clear revelation of Him, I saw who He was, and then I saw who I was. There came a time when I realized how big God was and just how small and insignificant I really am. And I want to tell you now I can say from the depths of my soul, Lord, here am I. Send me. I'll go wherever, do whatever, be whatever. It's your call. Here am I. Send me. And I'm going to say it again. If you really ever catch a glimpse of who God is, you'll willingly, you'll completely, and you'll passionately say, Here am I, Lord. Send me. I'll be whatever you want me to be. Go wherever you want me to go and do whatever you call me to do. Matter of fact, this ought to be the automatic response of someone who has seen the king. A person who has seen Jesus cannot walk away saying, My will be done. They're going to walk away saying, Thy will be done. By the way, that's the only answer God's going to accept. Here am I. Send me. Friend, do you want God to use you? Christian, do you want your life to count for things eternal? Do you want the favor, the power, and the anointing of God to rest upon you? Then there can be only one answer. Here am I. Send me. Because of the answer given by a willing heart, I want you to see the final thing. The assignment that's given to a willing man. We often stop at verse 8. Very seldom you hear preachers go past, or verse 9, they'll stop around verse 8 or 9. But very seldom they go past it. Uh, and you never get to see the outcome of Isaiah's willingness to go where God would send him and do what God would tell him to do. In verse 8, we hear the answer. In verse 9, we get his assignment. And, it, and he says that, uh, matter of fact, look at verse 9. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, see ye indeed, but perceive not. He's to go to an unconverted people to spread the news, to sound the alarm. He's to preach the Word of God to them. Now God warns him that for the most part his message is going to fall on deaf ears. But Isaiah goes nonetheless. And look at verse 10. He's not only going to an unconverted people, but to an unconcerned people. He says, make the heart of this people fat. Make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. So the warning's clear here, folks. He's to go share the Word of God with people whose heart is going to grow harder and harder. You see, the more he preaches, their heart, the Bible says, will become fat. Their ears will become heavy. Their eyes will shut. Now, Isaiah is aware of just how difficult the task this is going to be. You say, how do you know? Look at verse 11. Because he asked God the question that many preachers have asked God over the years. How long, Lord? How long do I have to stay there? How long do I need to be there? In other words, he says, God, how long am I supposed to go and reach out to people that don't care and that don't want to hear? God gives the answer. Look at verse 11 and 12. 
God says, until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now ultimately, the more Isaiah preaches, the more the people harden their heart. Until, God makes reference to this, until the Babylonian captivity, when only, and it's described in verse 13, that a tenth will return, or a tenth of the people will remain See, regardless of people's response, Isaiah has a responsibility. He made himself available to God. So he has to follow. Isaiah must go follow the assignment God's given him. Now let me ask you something, Christian. Does that assignment sound familiar? It should. It should because we've all been given the very same one. We've been given that assignment to go to the unconverted and to the unconcerned people at home, at work, at school, at the store, wherever we're at, and we're to tell them what the Lord's done for us. I didn't get an amen on that. Is that not what we're called to do? You know, it amazes me how we love to sing certain songs. And we love to sing, I love to tell the story. It's one of my favorite old hymns. I love to tell the story. But the truth is, most Christians don't love it enough to live it or to share it with family, friends, and classmates who are lost and on the way to hell. That's a fact. The message, the gospel, folks, it may fall on deaf ears, but going and sharing, that's our responsibility. The results are God's responsibility. God hadn't called us and I've told so many young preachers this over the year God does not call us to be successful but to be faithful because if we're faithful in God's eyes we're successful early in the last century there was a London newspaper that carried an advertisement I want to read it to you it says men wanted for hazardous darkness constant danger safe return doubtful Honor and recognition in case of success. Now the ad was signed by the famous Arctic explorer Sir Arnold Shackleton. Arnold Shackleton put an ad and wanted men for an expedition. And he received thousands of responses from men all over the world. Did you hear what he said? Safe return, doubtful. Hazardous darkness, constant danger. And safe return, Doubtful. And thousands of men from all across the world sent responses to that advertisement. Warren Wiersbe, the great Bible teacher, commenting about that very ad. He said, if Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this. And I want to read it to you. Men and women wanted for a difficult task of helping to build my church. You'll often be misunderstood even by those working with you. You'll face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor, and your full reward will not come till after all your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life, but the rewards far outweigh the risk. Let me ask you, do you realize, friend, what worship, true worship really is? It's when God shows up. And do you recognize what true worship does? Worship causes those of us who are guilty to speak up. Just like Isaiah and say, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a sinful person. And then after we speak up in repentance, it causes us to do the same thing Isaiah did. That sign up for service. 
to say, here am I, send me, I'll go. In other words, we get the idea in Isaiah chapter 6 that true worship, it turns whiners into warriors, cowards into soldiers, and those who are lazy into laborers. That's what true worship does. True worship turns our giving into going, our learning into living, and our singing into serving. So let me ask in closing. Let me ask you, because if you've seen the king, will you speak up out of repentance? Will you sign up and will you say, God, here am I, send me. I'll go, I'll be whoever, do whatever, and go wherever you send me, wherever the king asked me to go. Folks, believe it or not, it can happen. And it should happen to every one of us that call ourselves a Christian. And God wants it to happen. Matter of fact, He wants it to happen right now in church. Would you bow your heads, please?